Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We're going to begin. Good to see you all. Uh, we missed our gathering last Lord's Day, but that happens from time to time, even in Kentucky. Um, maybe we'll miss a few more Sundays before winter's over. I hope not. But I'm um, glad that we could come back together. It's more of a challenge for Pastor Keith because his class sort of requires staying right on schedule because it's a curriculum that um, is set and fixed. So he's going. that's why his class is meeting a little bit early today. He's trying to cover two two chapters in the same period of time. We are, as of today, on chapter 19. We actually had one study, I think maybe two studies prior to this, and so I guess this is our probably our 21st study. So uh, let me just began by reminding you sort of where we've come from most recently under the general topic of the, the doctrine of God's Son we've only had one study so far and that was on his person and we saw together that there is one person with two natures. We of course remember that they were his divine and his human. Now today we're actually going to add the number three. So it's kind of a nice way of remembering it. One person, two natures, three offices. And if you've read the chapter, you know that they are the office of prophet, priest, and king. So, this is what we're going to be thinking about today. The three offices of Christ. So, just easy, easy to remember, one person, two natures, three offices. One person, two natures, three offices. And I hope that before the class is over today, you will have a new appreciation for why our Savior needed to be both divine and human. And just to kind of jump to the heart of it, it's because he was going to mediate between God and man. And that was known from all eternity. It was in the plan that God kind of stumbled on as history unfolded. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And the second person of the Trinity knew all along that he was going to unite his divine nature with the human nature and thereby become the perfect the perfect suitable mediator. Have you ever had to go through mediation? Surely you have. Some, some of you have had mediation in your marriage. 
and you just need someone and both the husband and the wife hopes that whoever is going to help will have some sympathy for them you know you the so wives are worried that it's a man and he's going to take the man's side and if it's a woman counselor the husband's worried that it's a woman but a good counselor um, is on God's side he's not on the husband's side or the wife's side so there are times in life that we need a mediator and we hope that he's really qualified so let me just say this there is a sense in which um, there are actually four offices but we don't like to think of it that way and I don't think we need to but if you really want to think about it right above uh, this one is sort of the office of mediator so that's sort of the the all-inclusive office but as you can't separate it from these offices because that's how Jesus does his mediating so he is our mediator how does he mediate by being a prophet and a priest and a king so we don't usually speak of the four offices of Christ we speak of the three offices of Christ now I think it might be helpful if I just read for you something from our our own confession of faith when you come to chapter 8 Roman numeral 8 it's hard for you to see that there in the little gray print but you see what the title is maybe Christ the mediator Christ the mediator wonderful chapter has um actually well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten chapters. Just paragraphs. I should say ten paragraphs. Let me just read a couple of them for you, just to show you. And by the way, this will illustrate how helpful our confession of faith is and can be and ought to be in our lives. But I, I, I highly recommend that you get the modern edition of it. It's well done. It's orthodox. All Reformed Baptists appreciate it, as far as I can tell. I've never. It's interesting that it says uh, Pastor Sam is on the back. Says it is a good cause to make more accessible to our generation the great truths embodied in the 1689 Confession. And Stan, Stan Reeves, he's a friend of mine, has done good work in bringing them into the English of the 21st century. This is pastor of Heritage Baptist Church, Owensboro, Kentucky. But the funny thing is that he wrote that statement five to five years after he became the pastor over there. But the publishers didn't realize that he was the pastor of a different church. So I'm sure he smiles when he sees that. But it's a great statement. And the other statement is from Richard Barcellos, who also was a pastor in our church and now pastors back where his heart has always been in California. So um, here's paragraph one. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them, the three persons of the Trinity, ordained Jesus, he chose and ordained the Lord Jesus to be mediator between God and humanity. 
God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king. And then that paragraph continues. Let me just read from another paragraph. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, that means its effectiveness, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world. In and by those promises, types, and sacrifices revealed that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's a long sentence, but I hope you got some of that. And the point of this paragraph is that believers in the Old Testament, hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, their sins were paid for in the mind of God and through their faith in a coming Redeemer, even though Jesus had not yet actually made the payment. But they came to understand the gospel adequately through what these uh, writers to the confession called Promises, types, and sacrifices that pointed to him. So we know about some of those promises and types and sacrifices that were very, very um, Christ-saturated, but they were pointing to the coming Christ. And then I'm almost through. The um, ninth paragraph says, This office of mediator between God and humanity, appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church. This office of mediator between them is appropriate for Christ alone, who is prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. And then finally, listen to this. The number and character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and to present us to God acceptable. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince Subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Again, that's a long paragraph. I think there were two sentences in that paragraph. But when you read it and you read it through two or three times and just meditate on it, there's a ton of theology. And the helpful thing about our confession of faith is at the bottom of each paragraph are the scriptures you can turn to that prove what they're saying is right. So our confession makes a big deal about the general office of mediator, in particular the specific offices of prophet, priest, and king. And I would just put it this way to you folks, brothers and sisters, there is no salvation for any of us apart from these three offices. I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself, but and I've already given the answer to the question I'm just about to raise, but let me raise it, okay? So before we consider these three offices, There's a question. Why? 
Why do we need these three offices? And the answer is really quite simple. Humanity, which includes us, is fallen, sinful, dead, darkened, rebellious, and helpless. I want to say that again. So we're in big time trouble. So we're trying to answer the question, do we really need a mediator who's a prophet, priest, and king? Do we even really need a mediator? Desperately we need a mediator. How's he going to mediate by being a prophet and a priest and a king? Why do we need a prophet and a priest and a king? Because we're fallen. We're sinful. We're dead. We're darkened in our understanding. We're rebellious. And we're utterly helpless. That's why we need a mediator. So let me just try to illustrate this for a second. I'd like you to think about what the situation was um, pre-fall. What what does pre-fall mean? It means before it means before Adam and Eve sinned and fell in their from their relationship to God and fell in their human nature and became sinful, and we became sinful. We don't live in the pre-fall. We don't know how long the pre-fall was. It may have been a year, it may have been ten years, it may have been three months, it may have been two weeks. The Bible doesn't tell us, but you know the story. The devil tempted Eve, and she was instrumental in tempting her husband, and they committed the one sin that God forbade them to commit. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they instantly fell, and they knew they were fallen, and they felt ashamed, and they felt guilt, and they ran and hid themselves in the, among the trees and shrubbery, and they desperately tried to cover their sense of shame and their nakedness by fig leaves, and God comes to them. We fell. We fell with them, and we fell because of them. So now, this, this pre-fall relationship of God and, we'll just say, Adam and Eve in this case, okay, A and E, there was beautiful, perfect uh, fellowship going on between the two of them. Use the word communion, which is the same word, by the way. It was a beautiful relationship. But the second they fell, this was destroyed. This was terribly destroyed. They didn't even want to be near God. They were afraid of God. But God, being gracious and redemptive, initiated an approach, and he went to them. And by the way, he also initiated a solution. And he told them that your shame can never be dealt with by fig leaves. It's going to require the shedding of innocent blood. I'm going to have to kill some animals. And they'll take their skins and I'll cover you with them. But you'll always know that in order for you, for your shame to be dealt with and our relationship to be restored, there needed to be the shedding of innocent blood. But even after it was restored, did their human nature suddenly become sinless? No. They're still sinners. 
They're just reconciled and forgiven, and their fellowship with God is restored. But they're still sinners, and they have sons. And their first son murdered their second son. So we have fallen human nature, and we can trace our lineage all the way back to them. I mean, if you go far enough and say it was, I got my sinful nature from my parents, and they got it from my grandparents, and my grandparents got it from my great-grandparents, and so forth and so on, and you talk for about five days in a row, 24 hours a day, you get back to Adam and Eve. That's where we got our sinful humanity. And because we are sinful, guess what? Something happened to our understanding. Something happened to our relationship. And something happened to our hearts toward God and the way we live. We became darkened in our understanding. We came, became alienated in our relationship, i.e. guilty, guilty, guilty. And we became impotent, helpless, prone to sin. No natural inclination for God. Living the way we want to live, we became rebels. How's this going to get fixed? What are we gonna what are we gonna need in order to have this relationship restored? We're gonna desperately need a mediator. Somebody who can bring the parties back together. And of course that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ who died in order to pay for our sin so that there could be a removal of, let's just put these words, ignorance, I'll use an abbreviation, guilt, oh, I-N-G, <laughs> thanks, I appreciate those early notifications. <laughs> it's, it's hard to write and talk at the same time. And, and to think, think and talk at the same time is a hard, that's a hard thing to do right there. <laughs> Okay, and we have rebellion. Okay? So we only have three problems. Just three problems. We don't understand what we need to understand. We're not even capable of understanding what we need to understand. We're in trouble with a holy God because we've violated his laws thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. And actually in our natural state we're in rebellion to him and we're dead in our trespasses and sins so we desperately need i guess i'll put a different color in here we need a, a prophet who can teach us we need a priest i guess i'll put it up here who can atone for us and we need a king who, who has power and omnipotence and can change us from the inside out. That's all we need. Just three things. <laughs> Desperately, uh, we need a mediator. And that mediator was sent 
by God to be our prophet to teach, our priest to atone, and our king to rule. I'm going to say that again. He was designed to be our prophet to teach, our priest to atone, and let me add one more thing. Um, This great priest of ours who solved the guilt problem also becomes our intercessor so that we can talk to God through him. And he also became a king to exercise his omnipotence and speak the word and say, so so to speak, let there be light. If I had time, I'd turn right now to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we would be reminded about how um, the God of this world hath blinded our minds, lest we see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ and so forth. But it goes on to say, but the God who said, let there be light, the dawn of creation, has shined in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he does that through his prophet. And the prophet, by the way, does that through the Holy Spirit. So that's there's the problem and there's the solution. I just want to stop for a second, see if there are any questions or, or for that matter, comments that you'd like to make. You're welcome to share a comment. The, toward the end of the class, I actually have a brother and a sister who are going to share for two and one half minutes and you time them, okay? <laughs> Because um, I, we can only afford five minutes, but they're going to take, the husband is going to just, they're going to focus on just this thing, um, the priestly work of Christ. If we had all kinds of time, I would, I would have asked someone to give a testimony about how God opened your eyes, the understanding of your eyes, and dealt with your problem of ignorance through the Holy Spirit and his word. Because... Listen, let me just say to you folks, the reason you're sitting here saved today as a believer is because Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, opened up your understanding to see and feel your sinfulness and your desperate need of a priest to atone for your sins. And you, you turned from your sins and you believed upon this Savior who died on the cross. You never would have if there weren't a prophet. You better be thankful for the prophet of God. Sometime pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for being my prophet. You dealt with my problem of ignorance, and you're still dealing with my problem of ignorance. So you sit down tomorrow with your Bible, and you pause and you pray. And if you want, you don't have to acknowledge the prophetic office of Christ. You can go directly to the Holy Spirit. But what about saying, Lord Jesus... You who initially opened my understanding through the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit and your word, today, today, give me new insight. I still have a darkened understanding. 
show me more truth today, Lord Jesus, as my prophet. So I didn't draw this out, but I probably should have. But I think you you understand. So let's go like this a second, see if this works out. I think that's it. Okay. Let's say um, prophet. I'm going to have to squeeze this in. I'll, I'll initialize again. Priest and king. Okay. So here we are. We're down here. But this is how it works. The prophet speaks on behalf of God to men. So it goes like this. Okay. Interestingly, the priest, I should put, I should put God, actually I should have put God here, but the priest speaks for God. I'll, I guess I should write this in here. For God to man. And to be consistent, for man. But I can't put God down there. I, I, didn't, I didn't do well on that one, okay? Engrave me. It's an E or an F. I know it's not an A. Okay. But I pro here's what I should have done. I should have had God, and we sh I should have had man, and say, here's what the priest does. The priest... See, I'm thinking out loud here. Spreak, speaks... Excuse me, I meant the prophet. The prophet speaks for God to man. But the priest speaks for man to God. And he acts on man's behalf to satisfy God's wrath. And the king really does both. He represents man and he represents God. Okay, so you understand that concept. So God gave his fallen people mediators. He gave them prophets. We know a lot of their names. I mean, if your life depended on it, could you name could you name five prophets? And just remember five books of the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, etc. Jonah. Can you name some priest? Who can name a priest? Who was the first great priest? Aaron. Aaron. Yeah, but somebody, but I think, I'm glad you said that. Because in a sense, yes, in a sense, Jim hit the nail on the head because I said who was, I guess I said who was the first priest, but the great priest, I'm going to argue, was not Aaron. The ultimate type of Christ was Melchizedek. Um, name some kings. Who was the first king? Who was the second king? Who was the third king? Then his sons each became kings and the kingdom was divided and there were all these kings and most of the better ones were from Judah and most of the worst ones were the ten northern tribes, but there were all these kings. And I just want to say to you folks, God was the one who gave them, this is what you need to appreciate, knowing the fallen state of man, God gave them prophets to give them the knowledge and understanding they desperately needed to have a right relationship with him and to trust in a coming Savior. He gave them priests to symbolize that coming Savior and his sacrifice. 
so that they could trust in the coming Savior. He gave them kings to rule over them, to protect them, and to deliver them. But they were all fallen, weren't they? Every, every single one of them. They were all separate also. Melchizedek uh, was one that was uh, priest and a king, and Christ was, of course, but all the others were separate. You yeah. join those offices. Yeah. You're, you're real close, but actually, technically, there are a few that shared more than one office besides Melchizedek. David, for example, is called a prophet in the book of Acts, but he also was a king. So David was both. And, um, well, I could name some others. I might think of them in a minute. But, but that's basically right. Never in the whole Old Testament was there one person who was prophet, priest, and king. So we have the prophets that God gave them. But let me ask you this question. This is a little bit of a trick question, so be careful. And if you answer, I might have to say, sorry. But I won't say, you're dumb. <laughs> I promise. It'd be easy to be wrong on this. Who do you think was the ultimate Old Testament prophet? Let me help you, because you might, some of you might be right on the edge of saying the wrong thing. This prophet told the whole nation, someday there will be a prophet greater than I. We're going to look at the passage. Whose word must be obeyed or you will die. Who said that? Moses. 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 <laughs> Moses. And this is why Pastor Mark is preaching through one of many reasons, the book of Exodus. Moses was also kingly. So there's the other person. He wasn't actually the king, but you know, he, he, he was over the nation of Israel. So sort of he had a kingly office. But we don't think of Moses so much as a prophet, but he, he, he became the ultimate uh, Old Testament prophet, but not the ultimate, ultimate prophet. Moses was a type of Christ. Have you heard that a few times in the last few years in the preaching around here? Have you ever heard this expression, the greater than Moses? How about this one? the greater than Aaron. How about this one? The greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the ultimate Old Testament priest. We don't know much about him, but he, he was a king and a priest. But he was more Christ-like because we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. We don't know who his parents were. He became the ultimate, and I'm going to show you that in the Bible in just a second. And who was, who was the ultimate king of the Old Testament who best symbolized the lesser, the lesser king? I mean, there is a greater than blank. David. David. Good. Great. But would you say Abraham? Would you say maybe? David. David. Yeah, David. So let's just quickly see this. Now, I'm going to, we're going to take a moment to do this. Real quickly, I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the promise made about 
a greater than Moses, the promise made about a greater than Melchizedek, the promise made about a greater than David. Okay? So you're all with me. I'm just reviewing. We're fallen. We're ignorant. We're guilty. We're rebellious. We need a mediator. The Old Testament people needed a mediator, but none of those mediators were perfect, and they couldn't do what the ultimate mediator was going to do by being the combination of all those offices, prophet, priest, and king. So when Christ comes, he becomes the ultimate prophet. He becomes the ultimate priest. He becomes the ultimate king because he's the only one that wasn't sinful. Plus, he was God. He had those two natures. He could really do the work of mediation. But let's see it. Let's see the promises made and the promises kept, which, by the way, Mark Dever has an amazing book. Uh, it's it's, a, it's a sort of an explanation of the entire Old Testament. Uh, one time in his life, he preached a series of sermons. Believe it or not, he preached one sermon on Genesis, one sermon on Exodus, one sermon on Leviticus, until he had preached all 49 books of the Old Testament, one sermon. And he put all those in a book, and you know what it's called? Promises Made. Then he preached one sermon on Matthew, one on Mark, etc., 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 until he got through the book of Revelation. You know what he called that book? Promises Kept. Now, that may be an oversimplification, but that's a helpful paradigm for you to think of your Bible. Promises Made? The whole Old Testament is, I guess you go this way for you, the whole Old Testament is looking forward, big arrow, Big arrow. Everything's a big arrow pointing to the coming of Christ where the promises were kept. That's how you should see your Bible. Old Testament, maybe overly simplified, promises made. New Testament, promises kept. So where did God promise that there would be a greater than Moses? Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Let's Notice this real quickly. And I will read for you just verse 15, and then I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 18. Actually, this is um, the prophet speaking um, to David. And here's what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Excuse me, this is David speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now go to verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them. See, it's prophet speaks for God to men. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And now here's where it gets scary. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak, in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, if you like, keep your one finger or marker or pencil or anything there and go with me to Acts chapter 3. 
and listen to Peter. Listen to Peter, Acts 3. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet, and this is a New Testament inspired explanation of the more vague threat that we just read in Exodus. He shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days see the whole Old Testament's looking forward to the new the old covenant is going to be superseded by a new the old Moses is going to be superseded by the ultimate prophet all the prophets who have spoken have proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets, Peter is saying now in his sermon, and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there it is. Promise made, promise kept. And Peter is simply explaining to his hearers that this prophet has come, and you're refusing him, and you're living in rebellion to him. Let's quickly look at um, the greater than Melchizedek promise made Psalm 110 verse 4 and I'm telling you there are many many more passages that we could look to but look at Psalm 110 verse 4 and in this messianic prophet uh, in this messianic psalm meaning by that it's all about the Messiah by the way what's the equivalent word for Messiah in the New Testament Christ that's what Christ means Okay. And in Psalm 110, actually, probably all three offices are being spoken of. But notice verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, this is speaking prophetically, you are a priest forever. There's one of the differences between Old Testament priests and New Testament priests. They died. He doesn't. They were sinful. He wasn't. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, quickly go to Hebrews 5. And if you want to keep your finger there, just to compare, you may, but you can remember it. Hebrews 5. And notice verses 6 and 7. Hebrews 5, 6, well, I'll start with verse 5, 5, 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice, not after the order of Aaron. After the order of Melchizedek. That's a quotation directly from Psalm 110. Promise kept. Promise made, promise kept. Real quickly, with regard to the office of king, please go to 2 Samuel 7. Notice verses 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 7. Verses 12 and 13. 
when your days are fulfilled, David is receiving a prophecy. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. This sounds a little bit like a king. It is. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, quickly go to Acts chapter 2. See the promise kept. Acts 2, verses 29 and following. Peter is preaching, you know, on the day of Pentecost. And this is a bold sermon. He's explaining what happened with regard to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and about a new day dawning. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would sit one of his descendants on his throne, that's his kingly office. So you see, he was both... um, a prophet and a king. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did it flesh cease corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured this out, which of course he did through the Holy Spirit. And then there's another prophecy of Psalm 110 in verse 34. The Lord said to my Lord, that is, God the Father said to my Savior, God the Son, Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's where Jesus is sitting right now. Promises kept. So all I'm saying to you folks is just to recapitulate why we desperately need a prophet, priest, and king is because we're ignorant, we're guilty, and we're rebellious. The Old Testament prophets, priests, and king were helpful, but all of them were sinners, and they just demonstrated the need for an ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and they pointed to him. And I just read to you a few of the many passages that point to the coming of the final prophet, priest, and king. And he's come, and he's our Savior, And folks, again, the reason why you're sitting here today, if you are a true believer and you understand the true gospel, which, by the way, is really simple. We're all sinners. We all deserve to go to hell. We're all going to hell because God is holy. But he sent his son to make a perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross where he took the wrath that we deserve. And the good news is that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. That's how we're saved. It's as simple as that, through Jesus Christ alone. And I want to remind you, as I started a few seconds ago, the reason you're sitting here today as a believer, if in fact you are as a believer, is because a prophet by the name of Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to deal with your ignorance. 
and a priest by the name of Jesus was sent to die a horrible death, to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial atoning death for your sins. Because you can't pay for them unless you choose to go to hell. I like to say that to people. You know there are two people that can pay for your sins. Jesus and you. What? I can't pay for them. Yeah, you can. Just go to hell and stay there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You'll never finish the payment, but you pay for them. But Jesus took it. The reason you sit here today as a believer is because God sent a priest to atone for your sins and now he intercedes for you. He's making intercession for us. We don't even have time to look at those passages. Maybe someone will quote them this morning who shares. And the reason why you sit here today continuing as a believer is because an omnipotent king sent the Holy Spirit on a mission to deliver you from the clutches of Satan and death and sin. He asserted his kingly authority in your life and now... He rules over you, and he protects you, and he guides you as your king. Brothers and sisters, you and I have as our mediator the final, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And his name is Jesus Christ. Now, I asked two of our members, just a husband and wife, Dave and Carla, if you just guys come up here a sec right now, I just said, would you take two and a half minutes just to share what it means for you, and we're just focusing now on the, pro, on the office of priest, okay? We can easily do this with, with the other two offices. And just tell us what it means for you to have Jesus as the one who made an atonement for your sins, that's what Dave's going to do, and as one who intercedes on your behalf, and that's what Carla's going to do. Share with us. I would say one of my life verses is Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this goes to the very heart and core of the gospel, which is the atonement of Jesus. And as Pastor Ted has uh, reminded us, our main problem with a holy God is our guilt and our sin. And... Uh, because Jesus was not just man, because there were two thieves on the cross that died too. Uh, if we believed in them, our sins would not have been forgiven. But because Jesus was also God, his sacrifice was perfect and sufficient to cover all the sins of his people. And when I came to Christ, the greatest joy I had was knowing that I had peace with God and that I could come to him without fear of punishment or uh, condemnation. And so that pours over into praying, you know, the fact that you can approach God. So if you have a problem struggling with prayer, meditate upon the atonement and realize that Jesus paid the way for you to be able to come to God without fear or condemnation. And you can have the freedom just to talk to God as his child without being afraid of him punishing you. So I just rejoice in the freedom that comes from Jesus' blood shed for me. Amen. Um, Hebrews 7.25 says that um, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. And um, 
That, of course, shows us one of the primary reasons for Jesus is that he intercedes for us. And I was thinking about how, you know, when I intercede for any of my friends, any situation, myself, you know, I do it with as much wisdom and understanding and intelligence as I have. But um, I'm not omniscient. I'm ignorant. I don't know everything. Sometimes I think that I do. I'm not wise and I'm sinful. But we do have an intercessor who is omniscient. He knows everything about everyone in every situation. Plus, he is for us, not against us. So he is for our good. So it is so comforting and reassuring for me to know that I have an intercessor who pleads my case and knows me perfectly and is for me. So, Dave and Don are just talking, they're just talking about the priestly work of Christ. So remember this, folks, um, there's only one priest in the universe that's over you. Only one priest. But the beautiful thing is that he has made all of us priests. Now we are the priesthood. And there's no priest between Christ the high priest and us priests. We make, we, we, by the way, the way we are priests is we um, pray and we intercede on behalf of people, but we can't atone for sins. But we are a kingdom of priests. But there are no priests between the ultimate priest and us. There's the priesthood of the believer and there's the ultimate priest. And they just shared how he made a perfect sacrifice for their sins and he intercedes for them and for us. So Dave, yeah? One phrase that I mentioned, forgot to mention in Hebrews, it goes over and over again, is once for all. Mm. I love that phrase. Oh, it's yes. Once for all. Yes. It covers everything. Meaning that it hasn't to be done again. It's once yeah. and for all. It's one sacrifice and that's it. Perfect. Well, I asked Mark and just, you know, he's doing this, this thing with us in, through the book of Exodus. And we've at least touched on the general idea that the whole Old Testament is, is moving toward the ultimate fruition of salvation and a final um, prophet, priest, and king. So I just said, Mark, any thoughts at all just generally about the trajectory of the Old Testament or what we're doing in Exodus? Just share them for a second. I would love for you to do that, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. Um... Well, there's a couple of different ways to think about it. One is to think about the whole Exodus event itself, or just to think about Moses, because both of them point to Christ in different ways. I'll just take Moses and we talk about the Exodus a little bit. Um, so you'll, you'll see over and over in the book of Exodus that Moses is not perfect, and that he fails in his office as both prophet and really as priest and as king, too. And so, pre-figured ways. He, he fails in a lot of ways. And then when he gets to the end of his life, he fails again and he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Hmm. Um, but what we're to learn from that is, one of the things we're to learn from that is that Jesus didn't fail and uh -huh. he was raised from the dead and got to go into the presence of God and return, go back I and mean, go to the ultimate promised land. And so that, that makes him qualified um, as the greater prophet the greater priest and the greater king. So that's just a thought, but there's yeah. lots of those little threads 
that run throughout Exodus that point us forward to a future hope. And we'll be seeing those threads as you draw them out for us in this exposition. I want to conclude with this, brothers and sisters. Um, you've, you've heard about the shorter catechism written in the 1600s, question and answers. Um, I'm just going to read you the, the four questions and answers. Question 23, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation, that is to say he was those things while he was on earth, by the way, but especially he was inaugurated into that in a more glorious and dramatic way upon his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, okay? He didn't become prophet, priest, and king when he got to heaven, but he was inaugurated in a fuller way. Okay, that's, that's the first question. Second question, well, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So as the word of God preached today blesses us or as the word of God read tomorrow by you or later today blesses you, it is Christ the prophet who has sent God the Holy Spirit to give you illumination. So thank the Holy Spirit and thank Christ your prophet. Okay, the third question, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once, in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. And finally, oh, by the way, there's a section in there about the difference between Old, Old Testament priests and New Testament priests. It's so great. I can't read it. There are ten ways that he contrasts them. But finally, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. That's how you got saved. In ruling and defending us. That's how you continue a Christian and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, which includes sin and the devil. So Christ is continuing to rule as our king in our lives <clears throat> on a daily basis. Well, you know what? I promise you, because I've read so much stuff, it's ridiculous. I got to read a lot more because we couldn't meet last week. I read this, this lecture by... Steve Wellam, professor of systematic theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I asked Jonathan, he has all of these um, on his computer, and I said, would you please just send it to me, and I'm going to print it off and read it. Amazing stuff. He's one of the premier systematic theologians in, in the world, really in the world. He and Dr. Gentry have written some amazing books. I'm going to tell you a little funny story, and then we're going to pray. When Diane and I got married uh, 47 years ago, plus a few days, no, it was, a, yeah, it was the 23rd, so we're just on the 27th. We went on a honeymoon. It was a crazy time to get married. And we, we went to a crazy place. We went to Canada in the middle of the winter. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. It was terrible. Terrible. But one nice thing is we got snowbound in a little town and stayed in a little motel as a husband and a wife and it was remember that Diane? 
As I recall, that was the first time we'd ever kissed. Lie, lie. <laughs> so, but we end up going to a church where my pastor friend Bill taught or preached, and Bill went to be with the Lord. He's preached here, and um, he put us in this home of a, of a doctor. His name was Doctor Wellam, and he was a um, what do you call it? Chiropractor. And um, he had a little boy running around, little snotty-nosed boy. His name was Stephen. And uh, I don't have bad memories of him. Since then, we've become friends. And the day we discovered that I met him when he was a little boy, we've laughed and wondered about God's wonderful providence. And to think that I saw that little boy never dreaming that he would become one of the leading, profound, systematic theologians in the world. He's a dear man of God, Steve Wellam. And I read his whole thing on the three offices. It was great stuff. So you know what? We're dealing with God, folks. And when you deal with God, you know what? If you take a thousand years, all you've done is scratched the surface. Because we will have eons in eternity and still never get to the bottom. So, hey, Rich, would you lead us in the closing prayer, please? Gracious and merciful God, it's a good thing to come into your house. Thanksgiving, your court for praise. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. We just thank you for what we considered this day. Oh, God, there is one God. We thank you it does not stop there. It goes on to say, and there's one mediator between God and man. Lord, we thank you for your intercessory work. Thank you that when you see us, you see the blood of the Lamb. Amen. You see us as worthy and not as we are in ourselves. Yes. Thank you, O oh God, for your spirit and your promise given that if we ask that you'll send them. Lord, do send the spirit today to our pastor, give him unction to speak. Give us hearts to hear, Lord. Revive us, quicken us, give us more love to you, O oh God. Thank you all for this time. Thank you for every mercy that's in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 There you go. Sir. Gordon.